It is because of your grace and mercy that we can even call upon you as Father right now. And we do. And we pray and ask, God, that you would teach us what we know not. That you would give us what we have not. And that you would make us what we are not. And do all of this for your glory, for Christ's reward. And do it by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of each of your blood-bought children. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to be continuing our Back to the basic series, Recovering Biblical Friendship. And to do that, I want to give a quick recap of what we've covered. Three weeks ago, Stephen covered the importance and the need for friendship. And then two weeks ago, Matt Volwinkle and his sermon squad came up and shared, showed us the benefit and the blessing of friendship. And we're going to pick right up there and cover this next part. But you see on your handout, you've got a QR code. You can scan this at some time after the message, and it will take you to a web page, and you can get all of the different resources, more than what I'm going to be able to cover here today. And one of the main resources is this book we've been using, Made for Friendship. In chapter 5, the author covers cultivating friendship, and he lists 15 specific principles of cultivating deeper friendship. On top of that, he then gives 24 practical ways to apply those 15 principles. Now, how much am I covering today of that? Zero. That's why you have the QR code. I'm going to share one principle only, and then we're going to go from there. And I'm going to do what the author does. I'm going to start with a quote from a Scottish theologian, Hugh Black, who says, We have few friendships. Why? Because we are not willing to pay the price of friendship. The secret of friendship is just the secret of all spiritual blessing that we may get that the way to get is to give. And Stephen touched on this a few weeks ago. He said, this isn't about how I can get, be, be getting more friends. It's how I can give more. And the question, friendship, are you willing to pay the price? And I want to start by asking a question. When you see the word storm, what comes to your mind? Thunder, lightning, maybe hurricane, or in the Midwest, tornadoes. Maybe you're thinking tropical storms. Some of you I know like winter. But you put the word storm with winter, not so much. In fact, you put the word storm with any word, a good word, and it becomes a bad thing, right? The calm before the storm, when the sky gets that eerie green, something bad is about to happen. Or let's say I'm watching my my favorite team playing, right? And they're about to score a touchdown, and all of a sudden a storm warning comes on. Now, I want a warning if a storm's coming as much as the next person, but not during my game, right? And if I say storms of life, Now, immediately I know that many of you can think of things in the past or even what you are going through now that is weighing heavy on you. And it's hard not to think of even people connected with those storms of life. In fact, that's another one of a stormy relationship. And it's not just between a couple or a marriage. It can be between parent and child. It can be between friends where there is conflict, where there is disunity or even tension The Bible calls it discord and strife, and and maybe it's just a matter of we're we're struggling in our communication. I was meeting with a friend recently who's going through a really stormy relationship, and I asked him this question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word storm? He gave two words, one not surprising, 
it's dangerous, or he said beautiful. The difference was perspective. Let me explain. Let's say you're looking at this storm and you're the photographer far enough away and you take the shot at the right moment and you know you've got a beautiful shot because you are separated. But what if your perspective is on the crew of that sailboat? Now it's not so beautiful. In fact, it's dangerous. It is even possibly destructive. It could crush you, especially if that storm is moving towards you. Now, if the storm has passed and is moving away, now the sky opens up and it's beautiful. But is that the only thing that determines if a storm is beautiful, if it is gone or if I am far enough removed from it? That is what we call conflict avoidance. And oftentimes our prayers are filled with this. God, get me out of this storm. But what if there was a better way? What if... We're not removed and just an observer of, of storms of conflict. We are on the boat and the, st- and the storm is moving towards us and we could still see it as beautiful. Barbara, are you saying that I should enjoy the pain and suffering of conflict? No, but enjoy what it may produce. Let's say you're on that boat and with you are four friends who are experienced sailors. Between them, they have over 50 years of sailing experience. Not only that, but you have notified the local authorities who are not only watching the storm, they are watching you because they know that you are preparing, training for something specific. What could you possibly be training for? For years, you and your crew have been planning to circumvent the globe and break the world record for sailing around it. And this is the day you have been training for. This storm is exactly what you need to get you to the last stage where you know you'll be ready. And you see this storm coming and it is beautiful because you know you will be closer together after it and ready for what God has in store for you. In CrossFit marriage, we use a phrase that conflict is the currency we pay for deeper intimacy when we work through it together. The price then, the question, is what is the price? I can tell you that it is not the conflict. Mutual conflict resolution only happens when people work through it together. And this is from Dr. Les and Leslie Parrott. And if you scan that QR code, you will be able to listen to a 40-minute message that they give on this exact message. And so we encourage you to do that. They also are going to give you conflict resolution tools, which I'm not going to have time to be able to give you today. But you'll be able to get that by scanning that QR code. Again, conflict in and of itself will not produce closeness, intimacy. Intimacy just means closeness. It's not going to produce deep friendships. What is it that does? It is when we work through it, it being the conflict together. That is going to be one of the principles, I say, that will help us pay the price for deeper closeness with others. Mutual conflict resolution. It has to be mutual. You cannot force someone to be reconciled with you. You may be ready. They may not. Another book I want to recommend is The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict. I have not read this book, but, but Fritz Good and Randy Overdorf have. And uh, I highly recommend Fritz Good and Randy Overdorf, and they highly recommend this book. So if you want more on, on tools and skills on how to resolve conflict, I give you Fritz Good and Randy Overdorf, which is better than if I gave you 24 principles and you only remembered maybe one or two of them. 
So I give you these brothers who have both taught this class multiple times, and this is a tool that they highly recommend. Ken Sandy, in his book, defines conflict as this. A, a simple way of defining conflict is just a difference of opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Or to put it even more succinctly, it's a battle of opposing wills. And with that idea of battle, quoting Karl von Clausewitz, he wrote a book called On War. It's On War. And it is, he defines war as this. Now, I know we're not talking about war, but if you substitute the word conflict, this definition, I think, is very helpful. He says this, war or conflict is nothing but a duel on an extensive scale. Each strives by physical force or maybe in an argument. It's not physical force. It's manipulation. It's passive aggressive. It's anger or intimidation. Why? In order to compel the other side to submit to his will. War, therefore, is an act of violence to compel our opponent to do our will. It's like, well, you had me until the violence. I've been in arguments, I've been in conflict before, and it hasn't gotten violent. That may be true, but consider the words of another man, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, said, you have heard that it was said of these of old, you shall not murder. Pause. I understand that death in war is not the same as the word used here for murder, but let's just say it is talking about the taking of a human life as an extreme. goes on to say, and whoever murders will be liable, what, for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the same judgment. Have you ever been angry in a conflict, in an argument with a parent? With a child, with a friend. It's like, it might be easier to ask if I ever not been angry, right? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Well, I, I didn't say it out loud. He didn't say that. It said, whoever insults his brother. Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, think of this as worship. And there remember that your brother has something against you. In the context, the something that he has against you is the anger, is the insult, is the the conflict, the unrighteous conflict. Then leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled. Work through this conflict together to your brother and then come and, and worship God. Essentially, give your gift at the altar. Carl Jung had this definition for conflict. He said, conflicts create the fire of effects and emotions. And like every fire, it has two aspects, that of burning and that of giving light. Fire can either burn or it can give light. It can do one of those different things. It goes, Ken Sandy goes on to help explain this. He said, conflict is not necessarily bad. However, in fact, the Bible teaches that some differences are natural and beneficial. Many of these differences are not inherently right or wrong. They are simply the result of God-given diversity and preferences. He then finishes by saying, and here is the key, what determines whether or not fire burns or gives light? What determines whether or not conflict is productive or destructive? When we handle it properly. And disagreements in these areas can, and he lists four things. It can stimulate 
productive dialogue. It can encourage creativity. It can promote healthy change and generally make life more interesting. And all of that is absolutely true. And so there we see conflict is the currency we pay for deeper intimacy when we're willing to work through it together. Now, that sounds good, but here's the question. Is it biblical? Right? That is actually the question. It may sound good, but is it biblical? I'm going to show you that, in fact, it is biblical by showing you three friendships from Scripture. The first is going to show you the foundation of all biblical friendships, and then the formation of a biblical friendship, and then finally the forging of a biblical friendship. And what all three of these friendships have in common is that it took conflict to be worked through in order for them to go deeper. And that is what we're going to see. First, the foundation of all biblical friendships. Dwight actually read the verses. It is Jesus and us. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. But we're not going to go to John 15. I want you to turn to Ephesians 2. We're going to be here for a little while. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And we're going to start for sake of time in verse 12. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, it says, Remember that you... Who is the you? Right before, in verse 11, he says, at one time, you Gentiles. Right? That's the same you. So remember that you were at one time. Now listen to the language that talks about separation in relationship here. I'm going to use the red here so you can see this. That you were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant. And if that wasn't bad enough, having no hope, without God and in the world. That's pretty bad. Verse 12 shows us what our state was. You Gentiles were once, all of that, separated. But now, verse 13, but now, praise God for the but now, in Christ Jesus. This describes who the us is talking about. Jesus in us is those who are in Christ Jesus, you who were, now look at this, once far off, we're speaking, speaking about the Gentiles, have been brought near. Jesus is the one who is doing the bringing, bringing us near. By what? By the blood of Christ. We have been brought near. We were once far off. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is now our peace. Who has made us both, us being Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one. And listen to the language of conflict in this verse. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Between Jew and Gentile, you could not put a bigger wall. And if you tried to come over, the, climb over that wall, you would be killed. That was the hostility that exist, existed. Think of it today like Jew and Muslim. Only at that time, it was Jew and everybody else. And there was hostility And he broke that hostility down, that wall down, by, again, more conflict language, abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. The Jew and the Gentile are now united, reconciled in God, so making peace. We've been reconciled. All of this by the blood of Christ goes on in the next verses 16 that says, and might reconcile us both to God. Not only have we been reconciled with those who there was a dividing wall between us and them, more importantly, we have been reconciled to God. There wasn't a wall, there was a curtain 
in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies from everywhere else. And God himself ripped that curtain from top to bottom to show that it was done by him. I had a friend in college, Ken Leap, who made, he was a textile major, and he was a glass major, but he did his final in textiles. That's what you can do in art school. And he wanted to replicate the curtain hung in the temple. He did research on it and found that he didn't have enough money or material to make recreate this, so he made a scale model of it. He found out that the temple was probably six inches thick, the curtain fabric. Man cannot rip that. Only God was able to tear that from top to bottom. And that's what he did. How did he do it? In one body, through the cross. Again, listen to the conflict thereby killing the hostility. Jesus killed the hostility. The hostility was between God and us. Because of our sin, the wages of sin required death. And Jesus killed that hostility. He came and preached peace. Jesus did this work. He preached peace to you who were far off, speaking again of the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, speaking of the Jews. For, again, through him... We both have now access. And look, look at the Trinity here. We see through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him, in the spirit, to the Father. The entire Trinity is now involved in our reconciliation back to God. Verse 19, while ending there, I'm going to bring back verse 12. Remember how separated we were? Verse 19 flips everything around. What we did not have, what we were separated in 12, has now been replaced by, by something beautiful in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers. Where up here, we were strangers. We are no longer aliens. Where before, in verse 12, we were alienated from the commonwealth. We are now fellow citizens. The opposite of an alien, of a nation, is a citizen, an illegal alien or a natural citizen. We are now fellow citizens with the saints. Saints means separated. We've been separated unto where before we had just been separated from. And now members, we are members where before, again, we had no hope. And we were without God. We are now become members of the household of God where before we were without God and in the world. In the world and now of the household of God. Question for us to apply is, am I in verse 12 or am I in verse 19? Am I still separated, an alien, a stranger to Christ, to God? That can change now. Because he has already done all the work, as we saw. And see again, that he might reconcile. He does the reconciling. Thereby, he did the killing of the hostility. He came and preached those who were far off. For through him, we now have access. You said, well, I remember your definition earlier of, of that mutual conflict resolution which I'm amazed you actually remembered what I just spoke about earlier. Mutual. You said it was mutual. You can't force someone to be reconciled. Where's our part? Jesus is doing all the work here. Your part 
is embracing that, is accepting that. We see that in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul, again, is speaking to my beloved. And he goes on to say, what? Work out, here's our part, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For, since, or because it is God who is at work in you. We do because God has already done. That's our part. That is our working through the conflict that separated us from God. God, I turn from my sin, as you heard here this morning. I turn from trusting in myself that I can do this, and I realize that I cannot make myself right before you. I turn and I repent of my sin, and I trust in the finished work of Christ alone. That is the foundation of all biblical friendships. Now, if God has done that for me, and he has done that for someone else, First John says, how can you hate your brother whom Christ has died for? I can be reconciled to everyone in Christ. And that is the foundation, again, of all biblical friendships. Number two, the formation of a biblical friendship. We want to look at the friendship between Jonathan and David. It's in 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, and this is immediately following the battle where David defeats Goliath. He then has a conversation with Saul. They talk about some stuff, and then this is right afterwards. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the king, the soul of Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan is the son, firstborn son of the king. He is the prince. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. It is in the third person. It means David didn't knit his soul to, to Jonathan. Jonathan didn't knit his soul to David. Someone did the knitting for them. Knit his soul meant to bind, to, to make as one. And that someone was the Lord Jesus Christ who was knitting these two men's souls together to the soul of David. And what does it say? And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What, what caused this prince of the king to look at this probably 15-year-old boy who just had a major victory against a giant and, and caused him to love him as his own soul? Earlier, Jonathan, we hear the story of where he and his armor bearer go into a, a Philistine garrison and, and the two of them wipe it out. Jonathan is the only one who has that same kind of a heart where he tells his armor bearer, if this battle has been given to us by God, we can't lose. And he hears David say the same words to the giant. This battle already belongs to the Lord. And Jonathan sees a man, uh, maybe half his age, commentators think, finally there's one in Israel who has a heart for God like me. That, that we're told that, that David had a heart, God's own heart. And Jonathan was able to identify with that. Here is one who is willing to trust God no matter what. And it knit his soul to his. God knit them together. There's this parenthetical statement where Saul uh, takes David aside. They have a conversation. But going back, then David made a covenant. This was the part of David's side. God knit his soul to, Jonathan, uh, to David's. Jonathan sold to David, but Jonathan made a covenant. This word covenant literally means to cut. It, it's where we would take animals and we'd split them in two. We'd make, put half the animals over here and half the animals over here. And two people would walk between the animals. 
making not a promise, not a contract, but a lifelong covenant. As both, as long as both of us shall live, sound familiar, those words? For as both as you, you both shall live, as long as you both shall live, we will keep this, this covenant. If I don't, let what happened to these animals happen to me. We don't think about that in the context of friendship. But that's exactly what Jonathan did. He made a covenant with David. Why? It repeats it again, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan then does something. He strips himself of his robe that was on him, gave it to David, his armor, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And there's, we could go into a lot of details as to what each one of these represent, and they do represent something beautiful. His robe representing his position and his wealth, his sword, his armor, weapons of offense and defense, his belt representing his strength. But the important thing, in, in, in film we had this saying that says, don't say something if you can simply show it. And I saw this, and I said, this says it all. Father and son. Father gives of himself to his son. And we can easily put the, the names of, of David and Jonathan in here. For Jonathan was older, maybe twice as old. Saw something in this young man and said, here, take what I have. I give to you. I was having a conversation earlier this morning with a brother. He said, I would rather give of myself for the kingdom that God is building in and through you for his glory than my own kingdom made of my own hands. That was the formation of a biblical friendship. You're saying, well, Rob, where's the conflict? I didn't see any conflict there. Stephen alluded to it three weeks ago. Jonathan is the firstborn son of the king. We just saw a transfer of monarch power to the firstborn son. That was done back then. It was not only expected, people knew Jonathan was next in line. Even if it wasn't conflict in Jonathan's heart, there was expectations around them that was pressuring. You should be next. Even if there wasn't personal rivalry, competition... Jonathan's a soldier, a warrior. Here's another one who just killed. And, and it could easily be conflict in that way. If not that, how about just the age gap between them? That creates conflict, right? They're OG, and I don't get them. They're old school. These young whippersnappers. I don't know why we still use the word whippersnappers. I don't even know what that is. But just the gap in generations. How about the fact that David is of the palace, this shepherd boy, blue collar at best, from a pasture. He still smells like sheep. What about his education? David was street smart. Jonathan, schooled with all the best possible teachers and tutors. There was a lot of conflict that could have easily kept them apart. And Jonathan and David pushed through that to form a friendship that would last to the end of Jonathan's life. And for David, it went even beyond as he took care of Jonathan's son as if he was his own because the covenant still stood. That was the formation of a biblical conflict. And then last, I want to show you the forging of biblical friendships. We look at Paul and Barnabas and we can't forget to mention Mark. 
This is in Acts 15, 36-39. What has just taken place is, is that Paul and Barnabas have returned from their, their first missionary journey. They meet with the Jerusalem council. They, the council gives them some encouragement and some letters to then take back to the churches that they had planted together. And we pick up and it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us. Stop right there. What causes conflict more than anything else? Communication. I guarantee you, when Paul said us, he meant Paul and Barnabas. We're going to see Barnabas thought he meant someone else. Well, that's not what I said, but that's what I heard. Yeah, but that's not what I meant. Well, how do I know what you mean? I just go with what you say. That, that's a conflict of communication or lack thereof. He says, let us return and visit in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Good plan. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, his cousin. But Paul, there it is. We have a difference of opinion, of position. Thought best not to take with them. I, I, think, I, I think this is funny. Luke is writing, and he doesn't even use Mark's name here. It's almost like Paul's overlooking his shoulder. Uh, we'll just call him the one, that guy. Uh, the one who had what, withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had gone, had not, I'm sorry, had not gone with them to the work. This word withdrew is to abandon. He abandoned us. The work is the work of the ministry. He abandoned us on the field when we needed him. And there rose a sharp disagreement. The word in the Greek is a severe Argument based on intense difference of opinion. This wasn't sin. There wasn't a sin to take someone or a sin not to take someone. It was a difference of opinion. But it escalated. It escalated so much that the word sharp literally meant to cut. These men were cutting each other in this sharp disagreement. So what? So that they separated from each other. It is not overstating the point to say that this separation was like a divorce between two friends. To prove that point, this same word for separated, we see used. Jesus himself uses this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's being talked about here? Marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Again, united. A, a, a being reconciled together as one. What therefore, who's doing the joining? What God has joined. Let no man separate the same word. They said to him, they being the religious leaders at that time, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It's the same word used back in Acts. They separated So the question again, burning. I thought you said this was a forging of relationships. Often with, with relationships uh, forging, we think of creating something. We're going to forge a new path. Well, Larry Whitesell, talking with him earlier before the service, and this is him banging away, says forging is actually more of the idea of intense heat and a lot of pounding and pressure in order to make something new. That is forging. It is a storm. 
of in order to make something out of it. The forging is not the creating of, it is the heat and the pounding that does the making. And here we see that happen between Paul and Barnabas and Mark. We look back at Acts 15 and we see this storm with this sharp agreement, uh, sharp disagreement that took place and they separated. What happens after that? 2 Timothy 4:11. Paul writing towards the end of his life, probably considered one of the last letters he would ever write. This is one of the last chapters in that letter. Is writing and and to Timothy he says, "Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is very useful." To me in ministry. This is the same Mark. There is reconciliation that must have happened before he penned these words. He is very useful to me. This word useful is a beautiful word, Eucharistos. Sounds like the word Eucharist, and there's a reason why. It literally means useful, valuable, a gift of thanksgiving. At the root of this word is the word charis, grace. And at the root of even that, if you boil even further down, is the word joy. And what is Paul saying? Mark is a useful, valuable gift that I give thanks to God for. He is grace to me. He is joy. Ann Voskamp in her book, 1,000 Gifts, says this, Jesus broke the bread, offered the cup, and spoke this beautiful word, Eucharistos, grace, thanks, joy. As often as you do this, 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 this gift of joy and of thanksgiving of what God has done for us, do this in memory of me. And Paul is saying, when I see John Mark, when I see this brother who I have been reconciled with, I see a gift from God as if it is Christ himself blessing me. But what about Barnabas? Barnabas is not there. And in fact, the last time we read about Barnabas was back in Acts 15. We don't see his name again. We have no other information. So anything we say after this or that I say is speculation at best. And some speculation is that Barnabas may have died, either of old age, probably martyred. Some have actually speculated uh, that, that because Mark is back with Paul, that that shows that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. In fact, Barnabas was probably so bitter against Paul that John Mark got just tired and ran over to Paul and said, hey, you know, cousin Barnaby here, he, he's got a thing. I don't know, could I come back and join you? Was one I read, like, where would you get that? Barnabas, what does his name mean? Son of encouragement. If we're going to speculate, it is, it is safer to speculate that after the separation that occurred between him and Paul, and it says that Barnabas and his cousin Mark went, went to Cyprus, where he was from, the island, most likely it is that he's like, hey, Mark, I, I know that you've had it rough, and I know what you witnessed between Paul and I was hard, but listen, God is not done with you. He is going to do some incredible things through you, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. Mark, do you know who said that? Yeah, Paul. Paul was the one who said that. 
And at some point, I want you to go back to him. And I want you to be reconciled with our brother. Here, take this letter with you. Because they did a lot of letter writing then. It's easier to speculate that, can't we? Was Paul and Barnabas ever reconciled? We don't know. We don't know on this side of eternity. But I tell you this. They and John Mark have no differences now. Why would we wait till eternity when we can be reconciled now like Paul and Mark? The forging of biblical friendships may not necessarily be something you are going through for yourself, but it may be for another brother, for another sister in Christ. The, the Mark. Also remember what happened when Paul took Barnabas. I'm sorry, when, when Barnabas took Mark, Paul took Timothy and Silas. A new friendship was born out of that. And God forged through heat and trial and pounding the storms of conflict, that relationship. That is the one principle I give you. A final word of encouragement. It was a month ago I saw a good friend of mine wearing this T-shirt. It's the black T-shirt with these words, Into the Storm. And I asked him what it meant. Into the Storm, that's interesting. What is it? He went on to explain that cattle on the prairie oftentimes uh, when a fierce prairie storm is approaching, they get spooked and they turn tail and they will run from the storm. That's a natural thing. And what happens, though, is that they often can get isolated and lost and die in the storm. Bison, on the other hand, herd closely together and they innately go into the storm head on, coming out of the storm faster. As the storm is moving, they run to it, continue to run through. They get out of the storm faster. They shorten the amount of time that it takes for them to have to be in the storm. They also herd together instead of cows that scatter. They herd as a tight group. And it keeps them from getting lost because they have someone next to them, even in a, in a whiteout where they can't see. And they come out of it faster, but they also come out of it stronger as a herd. And they come out of it together. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. I like that. That uh, I could use that in my sermon. The question I want to ask is, is it true? I don't want to preach it if it's not true. So I went and I looked it up. And I looked at the uh, National Bison Association. They actually have one. You can see the website there, bisoncentral.com slash the-bison-advantage. And according to the National Bison Association, it is absolutely true. God has created bison to have this natural ability when they feel a storm coming, they herd together and they run into the storm, the conflict, the, the difficulty. Not that they enjoy the storm, but they know that getting through it, they will be closer together than if they had never gone through it. Uh, the final word that sadly, um, for me, the brother who was wearing that shirt has since turned and running away from the storm. What do we do when you said, I can't force someone to reconcile? What, what do I do when they won't? We do what Jesus 
did when he left the parable. He says he left the 99 to go and seek the one. Now, I know that that's talking about salvation. But we go, and we don't have to leave the 99. We can take another bison with us and say, you know what? The storm front is now over there. Let's go and let's pursue that storm, that, that conflict where that brother is no longer wanting to be with us, no longer wanting to pursue a relationship with us. Let's pursue that together. Matthew 18 is not about shunning. It is a seek and rescue mission. Let us go and win our brother back. We hear the word discipline. It's like, ugh, discipline, I don't like that. that that's confrontation. I don't like it either. I don't know many people who like confrontation. That's why we press into the storm. Because our, our brother is worth it. It is worth the conflict. The conflict itself is not what produces the closeness. It is when we work through it together. And as sad as it is, I have hope. Why? Because I was that brother 12 years ago. And three men pursued me and came after me and would not stop pursuing me. And I would not be standing here today if they avoided the conflict. If they just said, you know, it's just not worth it. They said, Rob Blair was worth it. And I thank God for them. As we close singing and praying together, I'm going to be praying down front for this brother. If you want to pray with me, I invite you to join me. Maybe you want to pray for someone else who you know is running away from the storm. Come and pray. Bring someone with you. Let's pray for them. Maybe you are praying for a relationship that needs reconciling today. That that you know you need to be reconciled. Let's pray. Maybe you have been reconciled to Jesus today. Let's pray. Let's run together into the storm.